Mabuhay mga bakla! Ako po si Kain at ito po ang aking bagong bonggang podcast, Think Queen. This week we are going to uncover the life cycle of a language. What you just heard was a sample of Tagalog, one of the many languages of the Philippines and also my native language. Well, okay, it's sort of my native language and it's sort of not. I moved to Canada with my parents when I was five years old and my parents always spoke Tagalog around the house with me, but I quickly adapted to speaking English in school to the point where if my parents spoke to me in Tagalog, I would just respond in English. And because of that, my English became much better than my Tagalog eventually. And when I grew up, I lost the ability to speak it fluently. which I think happens to a lot of young Filipino people overseas and even still in the country. A few years ago, I really started to make an effort to try to learn it again and connect with my heritage. My husband, who is not Filipino, he's British, has also started to learn Tagalog and it's been a very fun journey. We speak it together, we learn it together. He also learned French and Spanish before I met him and he can even speak a little bit of Italian and Japanese. And what we've discovered through traveling is that language is really the key to a person's heart. You learn so much about history and culture through learning a new language, and it allows you to connect with people on a much deeper level than you can with making gestures. To tell you a little story, me and my husband, we had our honeymoon in Miami. And when we got into our taxi after landing in the airport, the taxi driver was from Honduras and he spoke very little English. And then my husband, he built up the courage to start talking to him in Spanish. And then his demeanor completely changed. All of a sudden he was telling us the best spots to go, the best restaurants, which parts to avoid, what his children do for a living. Once he saw that my husband could speak Spanish, it just totally opened up a window to his personality and it was just so cool to see. So he and I, we really believe in the power of languages and I find it really interesting how governments and schools and parents try to keep certain languages alive while trying to suppress others. I have a lot of thoughts about it and also lots of questions, and we have the perfect guest with us today. Danny Heber is a linguist who specializes in endangered languages, as well as linguistic typology, which is the study of common cross-linguistic patterns across the world's many languages. He's also a science communicator. You might know him as Linguistic Discovery on TikTok, Instagram, or YouTube, and he's here with us today. Hi, Danny. Hi, Kang. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for being here. Okay, first things first, I want you to explain to us what exactly is a linguist? Because usually when you think of like a language expert, you think of like the polyglots who speak like seven languages. (laughs) So what is a linguist and how many languages do you speak? Because we'd like to know. (laughs) (laughs) You're always going to ask that question. So uh, a linguist is someone who studies the science of how language works. So we're interested in how language gets shaped the way it is, right? How does language evolve over time? How do people learn languages when they're infants or when they're adults? We're interested in the sociology of language, like how do people use language to do things in society? We can do historical linguistics. We can reconstruct what ancient languages looked like. And then my areas of specialty, I, like you said, I'm interested in typology. So I'm really interested in the patterns we see across the world's languages, especially the ones that recur over and over, and trying to understand why it is we see those patterns. Like why, what, are, what are some commonalities across the world's languages, despite the fact that they're so drastically diverse? And then I also work with indigenous communities to help revitalize their languages. So these are communities whose languages stop being spoken at some point or on the way to not being spoken. They're becoming what we call sleeping languages. And so we make dictionaries and grammar textbooks and other sorts of resources for them to help revitalize their languages. So that's that's what I do. Very Linguists have a wide variety of specialties and not all linguists are necessarily polyglots, but because 
we love language. We do tend to know a couple just for fun, but you don't really have to know another language fluently to be able to research and study it. So like if you imagine if you pick up like a textbook of Spanish back here and you read it cover to cover, you would know a lot of stuff about Spanish grammar, but you wouldn't be able to speak it. You would just understand how the language works. And so that's me with like a, a number of different languages, but I speak a few. My, um, my Spanish is pretty good. My best second language is actually Swahili. I lived in Kenya for a year and I did some field work there a few times. I can read Latin, uh, have a little bit of French that's been useful here in Canada, but that's about it. Wow. It's a lot. Not as many as your husband, it sounds like. <laughs> All right. I want to go back to like the very beginning to the earliest signs of language, because we have heard that the first humans who emerged in Africa, they started spreading around the world, discovering fire, making tools like tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of years ago. So at what point in that process did we start to develop something that you could call language? So it used to be that people thought language emerged pretty much at a single kind of point in history in the in the long spectrum of things about like 40,000 years ago. But that is really kind of outdated research now. And more and more research these days is pointing to both A, that language has a much, much earlier start than we originally thought. And that B, it wasn't just this like one-time evolutionary thing that happened at a point in time. They call it a saltationist approach. It's the Latin word for jump is saltare. So it's like you just have this jump from non-language to language. And we're discovering that that's not really the case. It seems like more likely what happened is that humans gradually evolved a number of different cognitive capacities over time and that those kind of gradually morphed together to create language. So for example, one of the things that's really, really important for language is theory of mind, the ability to like figure out that another person is another person and that they have intentions and like interpret intentionality behind their actions. And so humans had to develop this. And there's subtle hints here and there in the fossil record and the archaeological record that suggests point in times at which humans started being good at this. An example, another species that is pretty good at this is dogs. Because we've domesticated dogs, they've become very attentive. Like they'll do what's called shared attention. Like if you look at something, a dog will look at it too. But my understanding is that like wolves in the wild don't do that. Wolves mm. don't do shared attention. So that's something that like dogs learned from humans. So that's an important thing. And then probably our ability to walk upright was really, really important too. That did a lot of things that shifted our physiology in certain ways that made it possible for us to speak. So for starters, it pulled the larynx back and down, which also gave us a greater likelihood of choking, which means that it's actually, it must have been pretty evolutionarily advantageous of us to have this happen, despite the fact that it might have increased our choking risk. But yeah, so it's a whole suite of different like skills that came together and also our ability to like do kind of advanced, like complex hierarchical thinking was probably an important part of it. And so all these things had to be in place for language to happen, but language was starting to evolve even as these things were evolving. So at this point, there's possibilities that some even like Homo erectus at, like a million years ago might mm. have had boat technology. Can you sail a boat without language? Can you build a boat without language? You know, like it's it's an interesting question. Well, I feel like it's sort of toes the line of like, what would you define as a language? Because like you brought up dogs and lots of animals can communicate with each other, like birds can sing to each other and they will have different songs depending on like what they're trying to do. If they're trying to mate, whales have songs, mm -hmm. dogs bark, cats meow. So can any form of like communication be considered a language or is there something unique about human language with all of its like rules and logic and grammar? 
Human language definitely seems unique, but we have trouble putting our finger on exactly what it is that makes it unique. You'd think linguists would have a good definition of language by now, but we don't. We see things that are part of language and so many other species, but humans seem to be the only species that have all of these features at once. So you mentioned birds. It's such a good example. A lot of birds will have complex, hierarchical, repetitive songs, just like language is like a high, like, so you repeat certain sounds over and over and you recombine those sounds in different ways. And birds can do this too, mm -hmm. but they're not using it to the same functions as, as humans are for them. It tends to be kind of this performative, like mating type thing. And most birds, their bird song is genetically inherited. They will have the same song as their parent does. I believe there's some Japanese songbirds that had been bred for the color of the feathers of these birds for several hundred years in Japan. But because mm -hmm. they were being bred for the colors rather than their bird song, it reduced the evolutionary pressure on their bird song. And so suddenly what used to be a genetically inherited bird song started varying and their songs would be a mix of the songs of the mother and the father. And so you saw this kind of like almost like the self-domestication of the birds. And we actually think that language might have been fairly similar. We think that maybe we might have removed the evolutionary pressure on our vocalizations. We didn't have to like scream at predators or something like that. And that mm -hmm. started allowing our vocal capacities to vary. And, and we used it for social things rather than genetic reactionary type things. So you're, you're saying that birds get their language like genetically, so they don't have to learn it like humans do. Right, exactly. I believe they still need exposure. And this is actually very similar to human language too. Humans can't learn language after puberty, basically. They can learn new languages. Like if you've already learned English as a kid, mm -hmm. or you learned Tagalog first and then English second, right? You learned both of those within what was called the critical period, where you're just like a little language sponge and you can just soak up all the languages you want. Kids are so lucky. But once you hit puberty, if you haven't learned a first language by that time, then that's kind of it. You're probably never going to be able to learn language. And there are unfortunate cases in history. There's a case of this girl, Jeannie, who was unfortunately very abused. She was locked in a room for years and she was like 13 and they finally found her. And she was never able to learn language because she had missed that window, that critical period. And there's other cases wow. in history kind of similar to that. Yeah. So it seems like, like birds, we need that exposure. Mm -hmm. But in the case of birds, like they need the exposure and they get the genetic song. Whereas in humans, like we need the exposure to be able to like do the socialization and learn it. That is so interesting. I feel like I've heard so many people say, oh, when you're a kid, you're a sponge. It's so much easier for you to learn a language. But I watched a video that sort of made me like rethink that. Basically, the video was saying how we think that kids are so much better at learning new languages, but maybe it's just because kids like they're forced to learn a new language. They have to speak it at school. Kids are like less afraid of failing. They'll like consume media in the target language. Right. Like me coming to Canada did not have the option because everyone in school was speaking English. I was forced to speak it. Sure, yeah. Whereas like my parents... They would speak Tagalog around the house. They find other uh, friends who were from the Philippines. So that sort of made me rethink, like, is it really that kids just have different brains or is it just that they're like trying harder? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. So the kind of story I gave a minute ago actually is being questioned more and more now. And you're absolutely right about that. So mm. it seems like part of it is just time, right? If you're an adult and you're learning language, you spend like, what, 15 minutes a day mm -hmm. on it or something like that? Yeah. Whereas if you're a kid, you're like, you know, I don't understand what's going on. I got to figure this out, right? But it is also true that kids have a much greater elasticity in the brain at that age. Actually, one of the things that also was probably important to the evolution of language is the fact that humans started being born before they were 
fully developed. So a lot of other animals, you know, they're born and that's it. Like they get bigger, but for the most part, like their brain isn't changing much after birth, right? Mm. Well, humans, like we're born into an environment and our brains and our continue to grow to be shaped by the environment that we grow up in. And not all other species are like that. And that seems to be part of what allows us to do this language thing. So yeah, kids have this ability to do this very kind of elastic like learning, but they also lack a lot of the metacognitive skills that we have as adults. Mm. So in some ways, adults actually have certain things easier, like adults can bring certain metacognitive learning skills and abilities to bear when they're learning language. What do you mean by metacognitive skills? So you can pay attention to your own learning, basically. And you can say like, this works, this doesn't. Mm. Kids hardly ever have any sort of explicit knowledge of the language they're learning. So they just have to like do pattern recognition. They have to realize like, oh, this is the future. No, they don't even think that way. They just recognize that I hear people use this word form in this context. And so that's mm -hmm. the pattern I'm going to use. Whereas adults, they can say, oh, yeah, this is the future tense. And now that I know that pattern, I don't have to figure it out myself. I can just read it from a book or have someone tell it to me. And then I practice it, you know. And it gets really subtle. So one of the most famous experiments in linguistics is this thing called the WUG test. Yes, I've heard about this. Yeah, so, so there's this cute little... Do I have a WUG sitting around here somewhere? Not that I can show you. It's on the back of my computer. <laughs> so it's a man, you know, the, like the candies, the little peeps, the little super uh -huh. sugary things. They're like little birds. Yeah, right. So imagine a blue peep. And imagine if I showed you one of them and I said, this is a wug. And then I showed you another and I said, now there are two of them. There are two. And what would you say? Wugs. Right, exactly. And the way you said that is because you are a native speaker of English. And, you know, mm -hmm. you learned English early enough that I would call you like a, a stable bilingual, right? Like you have mm -hmm. both languages. So some people that aren't native speakers of English would get this wrong. They might say like wuks, or they might say wuggis or something like that. Mm -hmm. And those are other ways of pronouncing that plural S ending in English. So the S plural has three different pronunciations. You can pronounce it as an S, as a Z, or as an IZ, is. So you say cats with an S. Mm -hmm. dogs with a Z and uh, boxes with an IS. Oh, yeah. And so this is a rule that every native speaker of English knows just without even having to try. Like you just learn mm -hmm. that that's how I pronounce this ending depending on the sound that the noun ends in, whether it's a, your vocal folds are vibrating or not, or whether it's like a sibilant, like an S or an S or something like that. This may be a silly question, but since we talked about animals, I know humans from different continents speak different languages and naturally can't understand each other. But would the same work for animals? Like, could animals from different parts of the world understand each other? Could a Canadian bear communicate with a European bear? <laughs> that's, a, that's a good question. Yeah. I mean, because like Canadian and American sometimes can't even communicate. Right? <laughs> like, so mm -hmm. can the, let alone the bears. The first thing that comes to mind is actually whales. So humpback whales have these pretty complex whale songs. And we've learned that they are culturally spread. So we've learned there's like, I forget exactly where, but there's a, a location where we've seen the songs of one particular pod of whales spread throughout like the entire ocean from there. Mm. It's hard to say though, because like for whales, you know, they're traveling like hundreds of miles or kilometers a day, right? So to them, like the whole oceans might just kind of feel like one country to them as it were, like yeah. one area, yeah. So I don't, I'm not sure if we, how much sort of like dialect variation we see among animal communication. That's a really good question. Right. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. Welcome back to the podcast. Your specialty is in endangered languages. Mm -hmm. So what exactly qualifies an endangered language? Good question. There's a lot of different scales that try and officially 
kind of rank languages in terms of how endangered they are. UNESCO has the scale. There's a couple others. So it's it's not like an objective science. Um, but generally, the most important thing is whether or not you've got intergenerational transmission. So is the language being taught to children anymore? And so you can have some languages that only have like a thousand speakers. In fact, for the majority of human history, almost all languages were only spoken by a couple thousand speakers. It's only in kind of recent human history that we've started seeing the growth of not even mega languages, but just bigger languages and let alone mega languages. And that happened when you started having like dense um, urban settlements in Mesopotamia and onwards. So it wasn't until the past couple thousand years that we even had like these large languages. Prior to that, you know, you could be speaking a language that had a thousand speakers and it's totally fine, totally stable. It was being learned by new speakers. And there's still languages like that today that are, you know, only spoken by one village in Papua New Guinea. Mm -hmm. And they're doing fine. They're not endangered in any way. But usually if a language has fewer speakers, it probably is endangered just given the nature of the world today. And you can even have languages with millions of speakers that are highly endangered. Mm -hmm. A good example of this is a language I did fieldwork on in Kenya, it's a language called Gusi, and it's a tonal language, so you can hear Eke Gusi, and you have my pitch variation, it's fun. Mm -hmm. It's spoken in southwestern Kenya, but Kenya's made it illegal for children to speak or learn any of the tribal languages in Kenya mm -hmm. in schools. So none of the kids learning this language are able to use it in school, and it's not really like, there's no social prestige behind it. So unless they're in like a really rural area, they're not going to bother learning this language or kind of retaining this language after their children anymore. So no one's been like learning this language as kids for the past like 35 years, I think. So you still have a, like 500,000 speakers of this language. It's still widely spoken in Southwestern Kenya, mm -hmm. but all of the speakers with the exception of like a handful in rural areas are like 30 and older, 35 and older. And given the life expectancy in Kenya, you know, that means that maybe in 20, 30 years when they pass yeah, away. Once that generation like dies out, mm -hmm. there's going to be fewer people. And especially if yeah. the kids aren't learning it, then it will be gone in a few generations. Exactly. Yeah. I strongly suspect that, you know, if things don't change, Goosey is going to go from 500,000 speakers to like 5,000 speakers in the course of a generation. And so we do tend to see this like three generational kind of shift because that mm -hmm. usually it's it's when that intergenerational transmission stops. So it's hard to kind of like quantify how endangered the language is, but we can, you know, it's one of those, I know it when I see it kind of things. Mm -hmm. All right, switching gears a little bit, I want to talk about Quebec, which is the French speaking province of Canada. Maybe you can correct me, but I don't know if there are many other jurisdictions in the world that have language police. But in Quebec, they have laws that try to preserve the use of French. And there are like officers whose job it is to patrol around and see to it that French is the normal and everyday language of work, communication, commerce, and business. To give a little context here, um, Canada, it's a bilingual country and Quebec is like the place that was colonized by the French. So you go to Quebec, you'll see businesses must have a French name. French menus, French signs. If you want to put some English on there, it has to go second and it has to be smaller. Sometimes like it's like on paper that it has to be like half the size of the French text. Oh, interesting. Sometimes you're not even allowed to put English at all. Um, when you're greeted in a store, you'll hear bonjour or bonjour hi, but you'll never hear hi. You'll never hear hi bonjour. It's always that the French has to come first. So my question is, I mean, I don't think that French is an endangered language. We have a whole country <laughs> right. that speaks it. But right. for the Quebecois, they have their own sort of 
ancestral heritage, cultural heritage of the colonists who came in hundreds of years ago. So do you think this is like a good or useful thing that a government can do to try to preserve its language and its heritage? Yeah, um, you're right. I have never seen another area that has such like a, like you said, kind of a language police. Like I know I'm mm -hmm. sure there are laws out there and things like France has certain laws too, I think. But yeah, never to the extent that Quebec does. So it's certainly very interesting at the very least. Mm -hmm. So I actually think it's kind of interesting to compare Quebec to areas in the U.S. that are have a very large Hispanic population. So if you think about like Texas or Southern California, a lot of those areas kind of by default or sort of de facto have a lot of bilingualism anyway, because mm -hmm. people just realize like, oh, there's so many people out there that find having Spanish on labels useful. Um, I, when I was look, considering places to move, when I'm moving back to the States here in a little bit, I was looking at places in like Texas and San Diego, and I was happy to see that like all of the information was available in both Spanish and English. And no one, I mean, I know there are laws on the books about, I think landlords are probably required in that case to even make that information available in both languages, but they would do it anyway. Mm -hmm. Well, and I was also thinking about the indigenous languages too. Like there's no laws in Quebec to protect Cree or, you know, any of the Inuit languages, right? Like that's, yeah. Yeah, when they came in, they forced them to speak French. Right, exactly. And I think about uh, South Africa is an interesting case. I think there's something like 15 official languages in South Africa, but there's like 24 native languages to the region. That is crazy. And so it's like, why 15? Why not one or two or seven or all of them? It's like, so I think whenever the government makes choices about what their language policy should be, they're always exclusive. Like they're always making a decision for you about sort of what mm -hmm. you ought to be valuing linguistically. And people are good at doing that themselves. I don't think they need in the government to make that decision for them. And, you know, I, I really think Quebec French would probably be absolutely fine, even without those laws, precisely because of how valuable people find that heritage. And I think that's a great thing. 15 languages. I did not know there was a place out there that was like that. So does everybody <laughs> yeah. speak multiple there? Oh, yeah. Wow. No, obviously, there's English influence. And then Afrikaans is kind of a prestige language there. And then you've got all the local indigenous languages. Afrikaans is a mix of um, Dutch and one of the local languages. So yeah, they've got a very interesting, like complex socio-political linguistic situation there as well. And that's the thing is like these ideas we have of like one language, one country, mm -hmm. that these national borders somehow like map out languages is just total fiction. Like even Europe mm -hmm. is just a patchwork of different languages. Like you look in Spain and you've got, you know, Castilian and you've got Gallego and over in France, there's Occitan. Like there's all these different like dialects or totally different mm -hmm. languages that people just kind of, it gets papered over because it's, you know, in the border with some other major language. You know, even Europe today is still like hugely linguistically diverse. China the fact that all of the languages of China happen to use one writing system is very convenient for the Chinese government because they love mm -hmm. perpetuating this fiction that there's only Mandarin, right? But there's like dozens, if not hundreds of languages spoken in China, some of which aren't even related to Mandarin. A lot of them are like English and German. They they were related a long time ago and now they've diverged, but they're different languages now. And then you've got a whole other set of languages like the Sinitic languages spoken around Tibet area, which of course, you know, China's really not trying to like give any languages around Tibet any prestige. Yeah. So China's really like making a point to kind of like paper over that diversity and having one writing system is a really good way to do that. I feel like if everybody on the world could speak the same language, we could communicate with each other more, but like 
we lose probably so much, huh? Yeah. And you know what? It wouldn't even last. It would last like a day. Using language changes language. Mm. There's, there's no way around it. Like you cannot use language without it changing because we're always putting language to new use and new contexts, right? And so it shapes the language over time. So if everyone instantly woke up tomorrow morning and started speaking English or Mandarin by, you know, Friday, there would already be differences. People would be starting to diverge just because really? of like, yeah. So, and we're actually seeing that with English right now. There are researchers out there who research specifically global Englishes. And so Taglish, you know, it would not be surprising to me if in 30, 40 years, Taglish was its own, not mutually intelligible language. Mm. Like you could not speak Taglish and understand Tagalog. You would have to, mm. you know, there'd be two separate languages. We see that in Kenya, there's a mixed language called um, uh, Shang, Swahili mm. English is the thing. And then Singlish in Singapore, there's all these varieties. And historically, we've even got languages that tended to have arisen out of the slave trade, but you've got a lot of the pidgin and creole languages that started as just kind of like pigeons, like not full languages, but over time, children learned them as a first language and they became robust, full languages that like have their own separate grammar, have their different grammar rules and vocabulary. I've never heard of pigeons before. Oh, okay. Yeah. So probably the most famous one is Tokpisin. And I'd have to actually look up where that's spoken. <laughs> Somewhere, um, it's one of the former colonial areas uh, around the equator. Mm -hmm. But it tends to start because you have a bunch of people thrown into proximity with each other that don't speak the same language. Mm. So they do their best. They're getting by. They're coming up with kind of like little, not fake languages, but, you know, sort of limited vocabulary. Like, I'll teach you one word of my language because it's useful and you'll teach me one word of yours, that kind mm. of stuff. But over time, they become more and more developed and like I said, the real key is when the children start learning it. Mm -hmm. And the children, like we talked about earlier, were wired for language, right? So the children start taking this kind of, you know, really basic, not even a full language, right? It's just kind of this like set of vocabulary. And they start turning it into like a full language, like with robust grammar rules and stuff like that. And so at that point, it's called the Creole. And there's all sorts of Creole languages that are now fully developed languages. So Patwa in Dominica, for example, is a, a Creole um, Creole in Jamaica. So Haitian Creole is a Creole. And like I said, a lot of these are, you know, former slave colonies and things. So that was like the social context in which these arose. But now these are like fully foreign languages. It's really interesting that we humans so instinctively take languages and make them our own over time simply by just speaking them. And I've noticed, especially on social media, new words and phrases can quickly be added to our vocabulary. Um, but since we're on the topic of making languages our own and adopting new vocabulary, I want to ask you about somebody who sparked a lot of debate on social media in the past year, Austin Butler. About a year ago, I was at the Elvis premiere. I met Austin Butler. I got to talk to him. And there's been so much buzz around his accent because everyone's, you know, talking about how he's really feeling his full Elvis fantasy. Like even off camera, he was speaking with this new voice. So I want you to help us settle this debate. Is it possible for people to develop new accents? Because we all know there's those people who like go abroad, go to the UK and then come back with a British accent. You know how it is. Is this a thing? Yes or no? It's a little of both. So sometimes it is BS. Sometimes it is like a matter of social prestige. People are like, oh, look at me. I've traveled. I'm all fancy, right? But <laughs> it is also true that linguists have a way of measuring people's vowels. I know that sounds weird. Mm. If you like think about your the side of your face from like a side profile, where you pronounce vowels, like specifically where your tongue is, varies, whether it's like an ah and your tongue's in the back of your mouth or e and it's a high front in your mouth. And it turns out we can actually like, there's qualities of the acoustic sound, like the, the waveform that we can measure 
that allow us to say like where in the mouth a vowel is being pronounced. And so if you do studies of people that spent like moved to another country, you can actually see their vowels like start to shift very slowly over time. And for some people, even within a very short period of time. So you'll have someone with just like even two weeks of exposure. And like if you're in the right part of Canada and you start, you know, if you're an American, you go from about to about, right? And like you'll start seeing that subtle shift. Mm-hmm. So yes, it's it's definitely possible. It's definitely a thing. There's also something called accent accommodation, which some people are really good at. Some people just very naturally kind of will like pick up both the style and sometimes even like the phonetic features of how someone is like they're talking mm-hmm. to to kind of, you know, sort of resonate. Or like code switching, right? Yeah, absolutely. 100%. Because most people don't just have like one way of speaking. Most people have learned a variety of sort of styles and dialects and ways of speaking. And so, you know, these people are able to kind of move between these different ways of speaking and different pronunciations and accents and dialects, depending on the social situation they're in. Like there's funny videos out there of TV anchors who the camera like stops rolling and suddenly they switch from their like, you know, fancy mid-Atlantic news accent to some like very like rural dialect. And you just realize like, oh, that's not how they speak at all, you know? (laughs) So yeah, it's people are very like linguistically robust. We have a wide repertoire of ways we can speak. And some people are better at jumping between those different ways than others. So yeah, uh, Austin Butler, I could be real. So is is Austin Butler's accent real or not as as a linguist? I couldn't say for sure, but I think at this point, he's probably done it enough that it probably is pretty natural for him. He probably could (laughs) just kind of fall into it, you know, depending on the social setting. Yeah, We're going to have to get him on the podcast and study his his vowels and his job. Yeah, I'll do, I'll make a a chart. Okay, I'm afraid we're running out of time. But before you go, I want to ask a couple of rapid fire questions okay. that I'm going to randomly pull out of this hat. Are you ready? I'm good. I'm not great with answering things quickly. <laughs> I'm kind of an academic, but I'll do my best. <laughs> okay, they're just silly. You don't have to worry. All right. All right. Question number one, what is your dream lip sync for your life song? Ooh. Um, if you were the one lip syncing. Probably Shania. Whose bed have your boots been under? Whose bed have your boots been been under? Really? That's your favorite Shania? I grew up listening to a bunch of country music, and my mom and I would rock out to Shania once a week as we were driving to another town on Saturday. So, yeah. All right. All right. Question number two. If you could be an animal, what animal would you be? Um, Probably a wolf, which is funny, because that tends to be what people describe me as on the apps as well. (laughs) All right. Moving on. (laughs) You're like, next. One last question. Um, do humans have free will? Yes or no? Yes. Yes. I'm a big believer. Yeah. Cool. All right. Um, one final question um, before you go that I'm asking all my guests. Uh, what advice would you give to somebody who wants to become a linguist like you? Oh, uh, great question. Um, I would say you don't necessarily have to go like the academic route. If you're that interested in it, like learn about it. There's plenty of books out there that you can go and read and get like get your feet wet. There's one called Language Myths. It's one of my favorites. There's one called The Five Minute Linguist. And it just gives you an idea of like all of the things you can do in that field. And then from there, you can make a decision about like, oh, do I want to get a degree in this? Or could I just like learn more about this and go find a job or something like that? So mm. and of course, you know, you can always check out my linguistic discovery channel. And I have lots of information there for you as well. Yes, which was going to be um, my next question. But actually, you've piqued my interest. What are the kinds of jobs that are available for linguists? Oh, it's actually a hot field right now. So everything you've been hearing about with like ChatGPT, for example, ChatGPT yes. is what's like what they call a large language model. GPT doesn't really know things. It, do- it doesn't like know facts. What it 
knows is language patterns. So mm. when you give it language, it spits language back out at you. That, that's all it's doing. So it's um, linguists working in computational linguistics and AI. So it's a huge field right now. But you can do that. There's um, obviously like translation work. There's speech pathology. So helping people who have speech pathologies or sort of difficulties in pronouncing certain sounds or speaking certain ways, like helping people speak the way they want to speak, right? Mm -hmm. Also dialect coaching. So for example, actors will yes. oftentimes have to like be in different dialects. There's also like forensic linguistics, like you could be someone who helped, like, if you need to determine whether this letter was actually written by this person, how could you tell based on like, mm. how they're wording, could you use a corpus stuff, any of the speech language recognition and, and production. So like, Siri or the Amazon devices and things like, you know, there are linguists behind the scenes working on those mm. to help make these language models. So, and then just in general, like doing linguistics, I think gets you really good at like data science and data analysis and whatnot. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot, there's all sorts of opportunities out there. I think it's a really hot field right now. Yeah. I never would have guessed, but that's so many. Right. Yeah. Most people have like never even heard of like what a linguist is, but I think in the next, maybe, especially now with the AI technology and stuff, I think we're probably going to start seeing kind of a greater uptake of linguistics in the public sphere. Where can everybody find you if they want to learn more? I am at Linguistic Discovery on all of the various channels. Um, I think on Twitter, it's Ling Discovery because that has to be shorter. But yeah, so you can find me on YouTube, on Instagram, on TikTok. And I have been taking a little bit of hiatus right now, but I am coming back strong in a couple of weeks I'm, once I'm settled into Chicago and we're going to be putting lots of great content out there. Cool. Well, uh, by the time everybody hears this, you'll already be in Chicago. So yeah, it'll be great. Awesome. <laughs> I'll have to do. Um, I, I like to do kind of my version of like a, a land acknowledgement and talk about like the indigenous languages of the areas mm -hmm. I'm in. So probably the first thing I do when I get back to Chicago is I'll be talking about how the name Chicago probably is from the Miami, Illinois language and doing that origin. Love that. All right. Well, thanks so much for being on Think Queen. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Kyle. It's great seeing you. Thanks, Danny. Bye. Think Queen is produced by Entertainment One. Director of Programming at E1's Podcast Network, Sasha Tong. Producer, Maddie Hanika and Sasha Tong. Associate Producers, Chris Chu. Edited and mixed by Maddie Hanika. For more episodes, subscribe to Think Queen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen. And if you like this podcast, share it with your friends and make sure to leave a rating and review. Subscribe now to Think Queen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, or wherever you get your podcasts.